to Joshua's point about the offering, uh, putting it where we put it in the service, I got a call from Tom Kors this past week, and he was looking at the offering numbers from the past three weeks, and he saw two weeks ago a very low offering number. And he said, man, the sermon the week before must have really stunk. And and I said, yeah, but look at the other two. We had big offerings in the other two. And that means two out of three sermons were good. And in baseball, two out of three, your whole career means you're a Hall of Famer. So uh, we'll see about next week. See what the numbers say next week. Now, in all seriousness, this is our final week in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've read five different passages where Jesus says the same two words. Follow me. Follow me. In chapter 4, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In chapter 8, he said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In chapter 9, he said, follow me to Matthew the tax collector of all people. In chapter 10, he said, take your cross and follow me. And then he said the same thing in chapter 19, adding the two words, deny yourself. So if you put it all together, I think we've learned quite a bit about what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus calls his disciples to a mission of making him known in the world. He calls his disciples to prioritize him above all else, whether it be social standing, family ties, worldly gain, or even their own survival. And he calls people from varied walks of life to follow him, whether it be the blue-collar fishermen or the corrupt and hated tax collector. But as we close with our sixth passage this morning, where Jesus once again says, follow me, we see a very different character enter the story. In these verses, the man who hears those words, follow me, isn't just another fisherman like so many of the other disciples. And he's definitely not a tax collector. In fact, this man is the kind of man that most religious teachers would love to claim as one of their own. But Jesus doesn't show this man any favoritism. He demands the same loyalty, the same obedience that he's demanded of everyone else who's approached him. And of all the follow me passages that we've read, this one might be the most challenging for Christians like us and simultaneously the most humbling. So open up to Matthew 19, verse 16. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the consistent message that we've read in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The challenge, the encouragement, the summons to follow your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, in this endeavor. I pray that we would follow you this morning with the way that we worship, uh, follow your son with our obedience and our submission and our love for you, our Heavenly Father. And I ask that you be with us as we read these words. Give us the encouragement, the challenge, the conviction that we need, that we lack within ourselves to follow your son. We know that you will give it to us, and so, Father, we come to you with open hands. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your grace, your holiness, and your power. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start in Matthew 19, verse 16. 
And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The man said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So let's begin by assessing this man who Jesus meets. We know a few things about him. Number one, we know that he's young, likely under the age of 40. We know he's rich, and there's nothing in the passage to suggest that he gained his wealth through sinful or inappropriate or unjust means. And thirdly, we know that he's moral. He takes great care to follow God's commandments. He wants to do good deeds. So I think if you put it all together, he seems like a great guy. He's the kind of man you want your daughter to bring home at Thanksgiving. He's the kind of visitor that pastors hope will fill out a connection card, which, by the way, if you haven't done it yet, do it. He's the kind of follower who could really improve the image of Jesus's ragtag group of less than impressive disciples. Seems like a great guy. But despite all this man has going for him, he's also restless. He's unsatisfied. He can't really enjoy his wealth because there's just something gnawing at him deep inside. The man has a nagging problem that so far he's been unable to solve on his own. So he goes out of his way to find Jesus and hopes that maybe Jesus can help him. This man is not one of the religious leaders secretly trying to stump Jesus. He's not secretly trying to get Jesus to say the wrong thing. He genuinely has a question. He genuinely needs help. And perhaps he's praying that Jesus has the answer. Praying that Jesus can help him. So now that we know a little bit about this man, let's think more about his question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now give him credit. Lots of rich young men don't dwell on a question like that. Who worries about existential questions of eternal destiny when there's so many cocktail parties and polo matches to attend, right? But this man is different. This man takes his religious commitments seriously. He's wise enough to recognize that someday he's going to die. And he's convinced that this life isn't all there is. And he longs to be sure that he will have a place in God's future kingdom. But his question, his problem, his fear, 
just won't go away. You can picture the young man lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling and wondering, what if I haven't done enough? What if I miss out? What's wrong? Maybe his friends and his family have told him to stop worrying about it so much. They reassure him that he's already done so many good deeds. He's obeyed the commandments as far back as they can remember. They warn him about being so heavenly minded that he becomes no earthly good. They're concerned that if he continues to spend so much time thinking about the future, he won't be able to enjoy the present. But no one he's talked to has been able to give him the peace of mind and the assurance that he needs. For some reason, this rich young man still has a sneaking suspicion that he's missing something. And Jesus confirms that he's right. So let's look at the actual conversation. The first thing Jesus does is point the man's eyes away from himself and toward God. He points his eyes to something higher, someone higher. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, when Jesus says this, he is not in any way denying that he is God in the flesh. He's simply reminding the man that God alone truly defines what is good. So as this man stresses out over whether or not he has eternal life to look forward to, he needs to look at himself less. He needs to look at the various religious teachers he may have sought out less. And he needs to look at God more. Jesus points his eyes to something higher. But then next, Jesus encourages the man to obey God's commandments. You know, Jesus isn't wrong to do so. It's laid out clearly in the Old Testament that if you do what God tells you to do, you'll be blessed, right? Seems simple enough. But then the man interjects with another question. Which commandments? Which ones? This may be the man's first error. The first sign that he's only willing to take his religious commitment so far. Good Christians like us may be tempted to jump down the man's throat at this point and say, See, there's your problem. You think you can gain eternal life through performing good deeds while hypocritically wanting to pick and choose which ones you obey and which ones you ignore. You need to repent. You need to believe in justification by faith. And then you'll all be fine. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus doesn't jump down the man's throat. The truth is that we don't know for sure why the man asked that question. Which commandments? Which ones? Maybe he was just seeking clarity about what God's commandments actually were. We don't know. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But Jesus at this point continues to graciously humor the man through this conversation. So he lays out just a small collection of commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, by this point, the man may be getting impatient. Yeah, 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 I know. And I've done all those things. Get to the point, Doc. Can you help me or not? What do I still lack? Why, Jesus, do I still feel like something's missing, even though I've done all this stuff? Well, again, the rich young man's instinct 
is correct. Jesus is exceedingly gentle with him. He's very kind to him. Mark's gospel says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus doesn't question his sincerity. He doesn't condemn his desire to do good deeds. He doesn't mock his insistence that he's kept all the commandments that Jesus listed. But yet again, like he did earlier in the conversation, Jesus directs the man's eyes to something higher. Verse 21, if you would be perfect. If you would be perfect. That's the good deed you must do to have eternal life. That's the standard. That's what you're missing. The works you've done so far, while they may be impressive to some, not enough. Your good intentions, not enough. You must be perfect. You know, this isn't the first time that Jesus has issued that seemingly unattainable standard of perfection. Look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 20, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to his disciples, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then jump ahead to verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people Around, So how could the disciples' righteousness ever exceed theirs? And who can be perfect? I mean, we're all a little bit full of ourselves at times, but you'd have to be crazy to think that you're actually perfect. So how can the disciples and how can this rich young man possibly meet that standard of perfection? Well, Jesus lays it out for him. Sell your possessions. Give the proceeds to the poor. And follow me. Then you'll be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You'll have treasure in heaven. You'll finally have the assurance of eternal life that you've been searching for. But sadly, the answer that Jesus gives isn't the answer the rich young man expected. That's why he goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, before we focus on the big picture... I think it's important to understand something about this passage. And that's that whether we like it or not, Jesus focuses a lot of attention on wealth in these verses. He makes it abundantly clear that of all the different idols we may be tempted to worship, and there are plenty of them, wealth is one of the strongest. And yet we're often tempted to read this passage and emphasize everything but wealth. Why do you think that is? Well, one reason may be that, generally speaking, we have wealth, and we don't want to give it up. But the other reason is maybe a bit more formidable. It's true that Jesus doesn't tell everyone who follows him to sell their possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. It's true that you can rattle off a healthy list of rich Christians in the New Testament. All that stuff is true. No one should deny that. However, keep in mind, if your first reaction to this passage is to bend over backwards to prove that it's not really about wealth, then that may be a sign that you're guilty of the same sin as the rich young man. 
This passage is very much about money. You can't read verses 23 and 24 and pretend that it isn't. However, it's also true that it's about much more than money. You know, the conversation began with the rich young man explicitly asking Jesus a big existential question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? But the conversation ends with Jesus implicitly asking the rich young man another, different, big existential question. And Jesus' question for the rich young man is this. What do you really want? Have you ever thought about that question? What do you really want? Now, at first, the rich young man would have responded, well, Jesus, I want eternal life. That's the whole reason I hunted you down to begin with. I want eternal life. But over the course of this conversation, Jesus has masterfully exposed that what the rich young man really wanted most wasn't eternal life. What he really wanted most, he already had. What he really wanted most was his possessions, was his wealth. Look at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says there, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then verse 24. Picture the rich young man as you read this verse. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The rich young man wanted his treasures on earth more than he wanted treasures in heaven. This becomes apparent when Jesus forces him to choose between the two. He forces his hand, and the man chooses his possessions. The rich young man wanted to serve two masters, but Jesus forced him to decide which one he loved more. So what do you really want? What do you really, really want? How you answer that question will determine a great deal of your future. We too might say that we want eternal life above everything else. However, if we're put in the same position as the rich young man, how do we respond? Do we choose our wealth, our security, our possessions, our comfort? Or do we recognize that those things have no value whatsoever when you compare them to the heavenly treasure of eternal life in Christ's presence? Jesus gives two parables later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a field with buried treasure. He says this man finds a treasure in this field. He realizes how glorious it is. Then he goes home and sells everything he owns and buys that field. Then he gives another parable of a pearl, a merchant who's looking for pearls, and then he finds this one pearl that is greater than all the rest, unlike any other pearl you've ever seen. The man goes home, sells everything he owns, and he buys that pearl. 
What do you really want? If Jesus was standing in front of you right now, forcing you to put your money where your mouth is, the way he did that rich young man, how do you respond? Is the kingdom of God worth more than anything else? Do you love it like that pearl that's unlike any other pearl in the world? Do you love it like that field, buried treasure that can't be replicated? What do you really want most? Would you happily abandon your false god, the earthly master that you love so much, whatever it might be, money, possession, sex, power, family, goals, plans, hopes, and dreams, and follow Jesus? Or when forced to choose, would you walk away sorrowful? Searching out the next religious leader who will give you the answers that you want to hear rather than the truth. Would you be content with having eternal life if it meant giving up everything else you love in this life? Look at verse 25 of Matthew 19. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? You know, these poor disciples are shell-shocked by everything they've heard. And part of the reason they're so dumbfounded is that they always assumed that being rich was a pretty uncontroversial sign of God's blessing. The disciples fear that if that guy can't be saved, the guy who by all external indications was upstanding, moral, and even blessed by God, If the chances of that guy entering the kingdom of God are worse than a camel squeezing its way through the eye of a needle, imagine a cruise ship trying to fit through a hula hoop. If that man's chances of entering the kingdom of God are worse than that, then what hope did they possibly have? What hope do you have? What hope do I have? If Jesus' standard for entering eternal life is perfection, Who then can be saved? Can anyone be saved? Yes, but not by our own strength. Verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. People like this rich young man and the disciples and you and me can be saved but only by the power of God. Our only hope is to cling to Christ, the one man whose righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the one man who is perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. It's only through him that any of us can be saved. What do you really want? Because if you would be perfect, you must want Jesus more than anything else more than your wealth, more than your possessions, more than any other idol that might demand your attention, your love, and your loyalty. So do you want Jesus more than anything else? If left to yourself, the answer is no. If it's only up to you, you will choose something else. Like the rich young man, you will lay up the wrong treasure, you will serve the wrong master, you will walk away sorrowful from Jesus, because that is what we sinners do. But thanks be to God that it isn't all up to us. 
that God graciously pours out his Holy Spirit on sinners like us. He changes our hearts. He changes our minds. He helps us love and want the right things. By God's grace, sinners learn to love and want Jesus above all else. By God's grace, the impossible becomes reality. Now, it won't happen overnight. There will be times when we fall back into old patterns, old sins, old forms of idolatry. We'll consistently be tempted to return to old desires, old loves, and old masters. But day in and day out, the Holy Spirit is helping us love and want Jesus above all else. We're learning to recognize that our treasure is in heaven and not on earth. And we're learning, like the disciples, that with God, all things are possible, even for us to be saved. So are you agonizing over whether or not you have eternal life? Counting your good deeds and trying hard to obey the commandments, but still feeling like something is missing. Still searching for some sort of assurance that you really can be saved. Well, look less at yourself. Look more at God. Look to someone higher. Ask him to save you. Ask him to help you want Jesus more than anything else. Because his power and his grace make the impossible reality. That sinners like you and sinners like me may love and want Christ above all else. That sinners like you and sinners like me may have eternal life. Not through our good deeds, but through his. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this assurance that people like us can be saved. But it's not through our strength. It's not through our will. It's not through our obedience, our good deeds. It all comes back to Christ. If it were all up to us to love the right things and do the right things and want the right things and serve the right things, then we would fail. Every single one of us fails to meet that standard of perfection. But by your grace, people are still saved because you make the impossible reality. And Father, I ask that if there's anyone in this room who lacks that assurance that they have a place in eternal life, lacks that assurance that Christ is enough for even someone like them to be saved. I pray that they would leave with that assurance this morning. And Father, those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, those of us who do love and want and follow Christ, remind us, Father, and help us to love and want Christ more than the other things in our lives. Help us to joyfully seek out Christ like buried treasure, like a pearl of incredible value that is unlike anything else in this world. Help us treasure Christ above everything else. And Father, thank you for your grace that even people like us who don't always do the right things, don't always say the right things, don't always want the right things, we can still be saved by looking to you, looking to your son, and looking less at ourselves. 
We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name.